Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we're talking about lunch ladies today. Yeah, oh my God, what image just popped in everybody's head? Hairnet. Hairnet, glasses, apron, plastic gloves. Yeah, uh... Perhaps Chris Farley from SNL. Oh man, doing the lunch lady classic, um, or lunch lady Doris, or Dora, depending on the season from The Simpsons. Uh, there's also Millie from Glee, and uh, I wanted to kick off the episode talking about lunch lady stereotypes because it's. I feel like these stereotypes are things that people just carry around. Maybe they don't even think about them, but they are so inextricably linked with issues of classism um, that it's important to examine them uh, because another thing that those three pop culture references have in common is that they are also overweight women and, you know, women over a certain size in our society tend to be devalued because of it. And so basically we thought that it was super important to talk about the lunch lady because it is definitely she is definitely surrounded in not only stereotypes, but she is also invisible most of the time, whether it is because of our classist assumptions or whether it's about her weight, her paycheck, what we assume to be her level of education. Um, and there was actually an academic take on the show Glee, there's a book uh, called Glee and the New Directions for Social Change in which one of the chapters addresses Millie Rose, the lunch lady. And can you describe what Millie looks like? Yeah. So Millie Rose is white. She is obese and she is frequently in the show the butt of joke. She's kind of a tool for other plot devices. And in this chapter where uh, they're talking about Millie, uh, they said she is a cafeteria worker, which complies with the notion that overweight women are consigned to lower wage, unglamorous jobs. She's used as a prop, a catalyst for talking about bullying and eating disorders. But she is also a sad forecast for fat girls. They write she is an unattractive single mother who was left by her husband and who is harassed by students as she works. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that uh, really resonates with the trope of the lunch lady who is kind of disdained. She herself is sometimes portrayed as a bully. Yeah. You know, she's big. She's hulking. She's slopping food on your plate that probably doesn't taste good. I mean, in a lot of ways um, in Real life off of television, um, because of how disdained public school lunches are, mm-hmm. I think by extension, a lot of so-called lunch ladies are similarly disdained. Like they're feeding our children this awful food. But as we're going to talk about more, like it is hard out there for a lunch lady or gentleman, yeah. um, because they are working with just nothing. They're just working with garbage, really. They are working with nothing and they really can't be blamed for the fact that their industry is laid out in the way that it is. So let's let's give you the lay of the land to start with. This is coming from the Berkeley Journal of Employment and Labor Law from 2010. Uh, and that year, 2010, there were about 420,000 food service workers in American K through 12 schools. Uh, if you look at the demographics, they are majority female. Ninety three percent of cafeteria workers are women. Uh, and compared to the general workforce, these women are disproportionately older and more likely to be married with children at home. And since they are likelier to be married with kids at home, this might be a convenient job. I mean, they're working school hours. So, you know, some of these women might be taking the jobs for the schedule flexibility and the convenience of working on a school calendar and, you know, day to day schedule. In terms of education, uh, less than a quarter have earned beyond a high school diploma versus 62% of the population at large. And in terms of race and ethnicity, um, none are disproportionately represented. Yeah, basically they just mirror what the state's population looks like. 
Um, and, you know, Kristen mentioned the schedule flexibility. So looking at hours and wages, most of these workers work part time and only during the school year, which definitely presents some issues when it comes to getting a paycheck because the 2008 median hourly wage and granted this was during the recession, but it was just $10.45 with just 20% earning minimum wage. And the median school cafeteria worker works about 25 hours a week and 40 weeks a year for a median salary or a median wage of just $9,300 a year. And so it is no surprise then that statistically cafeteria workers are more likely to be a part of low income families than the general population at large. And so the study that we were talking about from the Berkeley Journal of Employment and Labor Law looked specifically at nine states. And in those nine states, 30% of the cafeteria workers were in families with incomes below twice the federal poverty level. 30% versus when you look at the general population in America, just 12% of the general population lives at that level. And um, I have a hunch that since a lot of this work is part-time, Many of these women are juggling multiple jobs, probably juggling multiple jobs and not getting any type of health insurance or benefits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Twelve uh, percent of these jobs these days or 50,000 of them are outsourced, i.e. employed by private contractors like Sodexo, Aramark and Compass, uh, rather than being directly employed by the school or the school district. And a fun fact about me, um, I've done some work for Aramark. When I was in college, I would work uh, concession stands at football oh, games from time to time. Really? And Aramark was the contractor for that. Interesting. And, oh, God, if I have to heat up another miniature pizza in a yeah. hot room, a I'm small sure, hot room. I'm sure that there are a lot of lunch ladies who would say the same thing. Yeah, that's the closest I got to lunch lady work, and it is taxing. Yeah, man. And really the reason why so many of these jobs are outsourced is no surprise. School districts really want to control costs and going through these large contractors reduce costs through things like bulk purchasing. Um, but really, and very unfortunately, the main source of savings is wages. They are paid so much less. It's the exact same situation as we were talking about in our last episode on custodial work, a lot of which is now being contracted out because for a competitive contract, you just pay them less. Yeah. And how much less? A lot less. Uh, these people working for contractors generally are earning about four to six dollars an hour less and they don't get paid sick leave. Uh, or health insurance. And I mean, that should sound familiar to a lot of our service industry listeners, a lot of people working in restaurants. And I mean, the whole hands up in the air WTF moment is like, if you're not giving our food service workers the room and time and ability to go home and be sick at home, they're going to handle your food. You, you might get sick as well. Like, so the fact that we're not taking care of our citizens is outrageous. Um, and the school cafeteria workers are basically twice as likely as the general population to participate in one or more public assistance programs, things like uh, temporary assistance for needy families or food stamps or children's health insurance programs. So basically it's, it's a bleak landscape out there for our school food service workers. Yeah. So basically what's going on is a lot of them are not being paid a living wage and, for this episode, we are focusing, I guess, more on K through 12 food service workers. But reading about this kept reminding me so much of college, Caroline, where in our college town, there is such there's such stark optics because you have um, on on one road on one side, you have dorms and a huge recently renovated dining hall where a lot of, you know, these food service employees work um, for very few wages. They are almost all African-American unless they're student workers. And right across the street from that are government housing projects where a lot of those same food service workers live. 
a lot of whom are, you know, obviously not getting a living wage. They don't get any benefits. And in fact, while you and I were in school, um, when we were both reporting at the student newspaper, one of my assignments, long-term assignments, was on poverty in the city. And there was a living wage movement among food service employees in particular at the school just because there were so many of them. And the university was so resistant you know, to give them any kind of wages because budgets and cuts and all of that stuff. But it was just this sick irony of a lot of students at this public university going on, you know, being having their tuition paid by state taxpayers. And yet public assistance cannot keep people who are then feeding these students um, in a living wage. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just disgusting. Well, yeah. And I mean, the greater irony too, in addition to what you're just talking about is the fact that historically, and even today, school lunch programs have been viewed as vitally important for children's health, well-being, and success. And from the dawn of our lunch program movement in this country, basically, and and even abroad, too, all of these people, researchers, uh, home economics professionals, uh, just human beings have been like, uh, hey, guys, we've got to feed our kids. They're like passing out. And so to consistently undervalue literally our cafeteria workers is it feels insane to me. But I got to tell you, Caroline, it was pretty fun reading about the history of school lunches, partly because for some reason, I really love like vintage food <laughs> trivia. You know, like what did what did they eat? What did they put in their little brown sack lunches? You know, like a like a turkey leg and some some loose raisins. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good salad to me. It does. <laughs> You're just the head of Romaine away from a, from a Cobb salad. Tell you what. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, not, not surprisingly, cafeterias and lunch ladies have not been around forever. Although, boy, would I love to read about ye old lunch ladies. I mean, would those, would those just be like tavern wenches? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> well, what I didn't, uh, what didn't occur to me, although as I was reading it, I was like, oh yeah, I totally remember this. I want to say from reading things like Little House on the Prairie, but in ye old school days, kitties wouldn't stay at school to eat lunch. They would go home. Yeah. They would go home, have their nice farm pail lunch. They would eat some fat back and molasses. <laughs> With Laura Ingalls Wilder. Yes, but as we as we move away from that and we are verging on the Industrial Revolution and moving into the Industrial Revolution, fewer kids are going home. Maybe they live too far away. Maybe they're in urban settings. But programs begin to be established to feed children. And they tended to be charities, not child nutrition programs. They weren't focused on, like, let's get them a balanced breakfast or anything like that. It was just like, we literally have to keep our children from passing out. Um, and, of course, though, once you do hit the progressive era, you do have a lot of well-intentioned white people who are well-intentioned and generally classist and racist white people who are very worried about the health, well-being, and Americanization of immigrant and poor working class families. So you start to see them really getting concerned about children being undernourished. So to give you just like a quick, though, like global timeline, and I mean so quick, in Munich in 1790, that's when you see the first soup kitchen to feed needy, unemployed adults and children. So that's like way back in the day, 1790, you get your first lunch, ladies. When we move into the 19th century, though, uh, we see France leading the way in 1849, starting to feed children from cafeteria-type settings. Uh, and it comes to the U.S. in sort of mid-century in the 1850s to New York and later in Philadelphia. Um, and again, it's you see a lot of this coming from those progressive reformers who are like, we've got to feed 
people, especially people working in factories, because we can't have them just passing out on the machinery. <laughs> practical. So that's a practical concern. Um, but in Boston in 1890, you get, I don't know if you could call her the first lunch lady. She's maybe like the patron saint of lunch lady. She's a really fascinating figure. Her name is Ellen Swallow Richards. Love her name. Love her name. Oh, but she's a chemist. She was literally the first woman admitted to MIT and the first to then teach at MIT. Heck yeah, Ellen. But Ellen created the country's first planned school lunch program after launching her New England kitchen to provide meals to working class families. So you see a lot of this movement coming out of the Industrial Revolution, the need to provide for people who perhaps can't afford to or on otherwise unable to bring their lunches from home or to return home on their lunch breaks. And so old Ellen, she had studied as a chemist food's nutritive benefits and the link between nutrition and attention span and ability to work. And so a couple years later in 1894, her New England kitchen joins up with the Boston School Committee to provide lunches to kids at public schools for a low cost. So the turn of the 20th century, researchers start picking up on what Ellen was putting down and realizing that her ideas were onto something because, yeah, kids can't really learn effectively and grow up to be effective soldiers without proper nutrition. So you see an increased push around this time to provide food for students, which is supported by home economists. So when we jump forward to 1937, more than 342,000 students were participating in school lunch programs. And that number would rise to 6 million by 1945. So why the boost? Well, because seriously, you need healthy kids that can then grow up to become healthy citizens and soldiers. So one reason why uh, you see this uptick motivated by, you know, producing all these healthy citizens is because in the 30s and early 40s, the Works Progress Administration and the National Youth Administration provided labor and the USDA provided food valued at $21 million to schools around the country. So this was a way of not only, you know, feeding your little soon-to-be soldiers, um, but also employing people through the WPA. Correct, because you've got to keep in mind the context, which is uh, the depression of of the 30s. And this is also when you start having even smaller schools uh, getting kitchens installed. Although in larger cities, you might have a central WPA kitchen that would cook the food the day of and then rush it out delivery style to the schools. I mean, it's like Uber Eats. Well, I just, I literally picture like the cartoon witch's vat, uh, being put in the back of like a milk truck. Uh huh. And, and some man dressed like the Maytag man, like rushing. There's so many competing visions in my head, like rushing it to the school and like this, the, the vat of, of soup is here. And, it, but, but he's been like, you know, like making a lot of sharp turns because, you know, sco- the bell's about to ring and the kids are going to come <laughs> to the cafeteria and the witch's brew is like sloshing out into the truck. So it's a mess by the time the milk truck gets there. Just carrots and eyes of newt everywhere. <laughs> you know, the uh, the eyes of newt lobbyists really pushed for a lot of USDA subsidies and got them. They got them. They really did. It's kind of shady deal. But it's thanks to the success of all of that eyes of newt in carrot soup that states started providing funds to expand their lunch programs because they see what the federal government is able to achieve through this program. And they're like, oh, well, we want to help our kids be healthy soldiers as well. Um, and so by 1944... Uh, you know, you've got a bunch of people on board with this idea. Uh, the Office of Education released a bulletin that talked about how only well-nourished pupils are able to derive maximum benefits from school opportunities. Uh, the American Home Economics Association's policy included things like uh, uh, school lunches are an important means of safeguarding the health and well-being of the nation's children. Uh, their policy said that the lunch program should be used as a means of educating children in a wise choice of food. Basically, this upswell of like high fives 
around Ellen Swallow Richard's idea of good nutrition, healthy lunch equals well, equals good and healthy students as well. Now, would you like to hear some sample menus? Oh, would I? Yeah, okay, great. Well, the New York Times reported on this in 1937, the headline, Autumn Brings Back to School Day Lunches. Uh, and the reporter notes how, um, you know, these lunch combinations are going to vary from school to school. Um, also, you know, pupils can be kind of picky with their food. But they said in one high school visited, there were these special lunches that were considered an outstanding success. The combinations for the day were a hot roast veal sandwich with gravy, mashed potatoes, two slices of tomato and a fresh apple for 11 cents. I really love this this part of the article, though, where the reporter notes the pupils in general are beef eaters. Put pot roast on the menu and they'll take almost anything with it, even Spanish rice, which they don't care for. They won't eat carrots. Ooh, I, that was me when I was a I kid. I wouldn't eat them either. But they like them combined with peas. They like fish. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and one of their favorite desserts is Boston cream pie with chocolate frosting. Hello. Those sound like some pretty good lunches. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll take some peas and carrots and a Boston cream pie. <laughs> and who am I kidding? Give me the pot roast, too. Oh, heck yeah, I love pot roast. <laughs> I'm also a beef eater. Um, you know, so we, we kept talking about, you know, school lunches are going to make good soldiers. And that's not just Kristen and me editorializing. Uh, this was a big deal around the 30s and 40s because there was this revelation that a lot of the young people who were being rejected from the draft were rejected because of issues stemming from nutritional deficiencies. So they were like, you guys, we've we've got to feed them. We've got to like force feed these children. We've got to give them more Boston cream pie and pot roast and peas and uh, send them off to war. Um, I mean, you also have the fact, too, You know, if we're looking at why school lunches became such a hit, we've already mentioned the Industrial Revolution, right? And then World War II hits, you've got women leaving the home, so there's not as many women who are at home all day long for students to, first of all, return to and have lunch cooked for them, but also just around to make the brown bag lunches to send with kids to school. Um, And you also have, toward the end of World War II, I believe, programs like the WPA being eliminated. And the WPA, as Kristen mentioned, had provided labor for these school lunch programs. And the war efforts demand for all of the surplus food that existed in our country, um, all of that drained food from the actual school programs. And so there's a clear need for nutritious lunches. But the support was kind of lacking. We're in the middle of the war. The government's attention is on the war, not so much on student nutrition. But the minute they realize, oh, my God, our soldiers, our potential soldiers are being turned away because they're basically malnourished. All of a sudden, you see incredible support for school lunches. So in 1946, President Truman signed the National School Lunch Act into law. And by the end of the school year in 1947, all states and Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands and Washington, D.C. had official school lunch programs. So the lunch lady has arrived. There she is. She's on the top of the hill, spoon in hand, hair netted, Waiting to serve you that Boston cream pie. Clearly, I am like, I need a Boston cream pie. Yeah, we got to find one of those ASAP. Or just like a donut. Someone please feed me. I'm hungry. And of course, she should appear heroic on top of that hill. Because lunch ladies actually had an incredible role in this country's labor movement and civil rights movement. And we're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. Enthusiasm for reading about vintage lunch menus was topped only by my excitement at learning about civil rights activist lunch ladies. Oh, I know. I, I had no idea. And and what's funny, uh, well, my ignorance is not funny, but 
It's interesting that when you Google, you know, lunch ladies, history, whatever, I mean, the 1969 University of North Carolina Chapel Hill cafeteria worker strike is the thing that comes up. I mean, there's almost nothing else. I mean, sure, of course, we we just gave you a history of school lunch programs, so there's obviously something else. But it is such an important moment in labor and civil rights history. Yeah. And and so this is getting into, obviously, college lunch ladies. Uh, we're moving out of the K through 12 setting. Um, but we will come back to lunch ladies of all grades. <laughs> but we want to introduce you to the mostly black, mostly female cafeteria workers at UNC who in 1969 boycotted their jobs to protest unfair working conditions. And their grievances were basically like, I mean, they they weren't working in great conditions, really. They had condescending dining hall management that passed black women over for managerial positions. Um, The managers would split the workers' work days in really challenging and inconvenient ways uh, when a lot of those women worked or lived far away from where they worked. And they would get their paycheck shortened and would not get promised raises, all because of really, really terrible supervisors. And I want to say that the students were not always so kind to these workers either. Oh, I'm sure. Um, so you have women like Mary Smith, who is a black woman who had worked uh, in food service at UNC for years, who was doing the actual managing, including training and ordering food and supplies. But of course, she was never promoted, never given the wage that would recognize her role as a managerial type of person. Um, and she, along with this woman, Elizabeth Brooks, was one of the leaders of this strike in 1969. So for Elizabeth Brooks, uh, working in that dining hall was her first ever job outside the home, uh, taking care of her nine children. And despite the efficiency of Elizabeth and the 16 other workers on her shift, the white male manager would just watch them. And Elizabeth Brooks said in an interview later, he made us feel like we were just a bunch of slaves. Yeah. And so there was also uh, there's this great oral history out of UNC about this strike. And and they also interviewed Ashley Davis, who was not only a student at UNC, but she was a leader of the black student movement there on campus. And she told the interviewer that the university would often hire these manager guys right out of prison. Nothing inherently wrong with that. However, they would treat these women terribly and would call them names like the one guy who was over Brooks and her colleagues would just watch them and wait for them to screw up and not help them and just be generally awful people. So, you know, Brooks and several of the workers were understandably fed up. And so they went through, you know, the standard procedure. They go to the manager in question. They talk to payroll administrators. They talk to other dining hall supervisors, but no dice. And Brooks was kind of the driving force for all of this. Uh, Elizabeth Brooks, who has the nine children, um, because I'm sure she wasn't busy enough as it was. Uh, but other workers hadn't originally wanted her to speak out. But finally, Brooks decided, I, for one, have always been willing to speak up. And she said, I'd been raised that you do what you say. Yeah. So basically that ties back to all of those raises, all of those promised raises and promotions and like, oh, yeah, you've been here a long time. You do a lot of work. You should totally get a promotion. And and nothing ever came of it. They were plagued with all talk, no action. And Brooks was just fed up with it. I mean, here she is. She's like, listen, this is not how I run this ship at my house, right? Like, here's my first job outside of the home. I am not going to stand for this. But meanwhile, there's sort of a perfect storm brewing in terms of like the civil rights movement at UNC, because you also have the black student movement already taking a very active and vocal stand against campus racism. Uh, the fact that there was no good quality like African studies program at the school, that black authors and scientists were basically just being left out of the curriculum in general. But they lent their support to these cafeteria workers. And in a December 1968 list of demands that the black student movement sent to the university chancellor, 
having worked with the cafeteria workers, they did include one demand to improve the, quote, intolerable working conditions of the black non-academic workers. And so you've got all of this going on. But what sparked the actual February 1969 strike is that you've got that one manager that we we mentioned earlier who was watching Brooks and her coworkers. He was just particularly nasty to her one day and one of her coworkers had been unjustly fired. And so these workers are like, this is insane. This is ridiculous. So she and again, her majority black, majority female fellow staff members get together with the black student movement and planned a strike for just a few days later. So let's set the stage for how this strike went down. So first, the, the the workers come in and they set up for dining services, business as usual. The shift supervisors, you know, then unlock the cafeteria doors for the students to come in. At that moment, the workers walk out from behind the counter and just sit down. And you have waiting hundreds of students who showed up to support them, who then took cafeteria trays and started just banging them steadily in time on the counter. And for some reason, I'm now pantomiming <laughs> in the studio, banging a tray on the counter. We're getting, we're getting caught up in the story. Oh, my gosh. I mean, what a what a cacophony that must have been. Uh, so with all this happening, the supervisors were like, all right, all right, we'll meet with you. But again, all talk and no action. So the workers were like, screw this. They formed a picket line and struck for nearly a month. Yeah. And what's what I love about this story is that they had such incredible support. It was not these lunch ladies out by themselves. They were backed by the black student movement. They were backed by the black student movement. They had just students in general, not just college students, not just black students, but they had black and white high school and college students from around the area, not just from UNC, who came out in support of them. And there's this great line that Brooks has in her interview that's like, ding, 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 here's a key to being an ally. Um, She was talking about the white students who came out in support of the strike. And she said they, quote, didn't jump in and try to make decisions. They offered their help and they let us decide in what way we could use it or need it. How important. This is this is the fight that we are fighting and we value your support, but don't, just because you're white, jump in and start telling us what to do. And they didn't. Uh, professors also showed up and just local members of the community came out to support these women. And the way they were supporting them was through collecting donations. Uh, they were raising money by doing things like shining shoes. The black student movement even opened up a soul food cafeteria to raise money uh, because the dining hall workers would cook at home and then bring it in to sell. And even old Joan Baez showed up and sang. And in the interview, Elizabeth Brooks even says to the interview, y- you probably she's that singer, you know, Joan Baez. <laughs> long up. hair. Yeah. Um, and so more than a month later, after all this picketing, uh, the governor, Robert Scott, agreed to pass legislation that would raise the workers wages in addition to all other minimum wage workers in the state. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So striking by cafeteria workers with the very clear, loud, vocal, tray banging support of all of these other community members managed to not only raise the wages of the women in question, but also workers across the state. Because part of the issue was that you had some of these cafeteria workers, these women who had worked there for years, but they might be making less than a new hire, or they might simply be making less than what they deserve to be making for their position and their seniority. And so they were striking for like a matter of of maybe 25 cents additional an additional 25 cents an hour and the governor acquiesced and the fact that it was all sparked by a group of disenfranchised women of color in the south during the civil rights movement i mean just speaks volumes to their commitment and the impact that they were able to have and also y'all never underestimate the power of angry women oh yeah mm. 
Especially women that have the power to withhold food. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Uh, And no surprise, lunch ladies are still politically active as part of the labor and healthy lunch movements today. Yeah. So first, a little bit of context. You've got to keep in mind that university dining halls in the United States rake in $20 billion annually, more than Taco Bell, Burger King and Applebee's combined. Oh, yeah, because uh, at some schools, a lot of schools you have for uh, incoming freshmen or if you are living on campus, you have to get a meal plan. Yeah. So convenient. It helps. It helps in gaining the freshman 15. It helps for sure. Yeah, um, that, that omelet bar. Oh, man. Never forget. Just my daily sandwich. <laughs> That's my talk show. <laughs> oh, the daily sandwich. Um, and most of those university dining halls, again, you know, we talked about out, outsourcing earlier, particularly in, in regards to elementary school and high school cafeterias. But these university dining halls also outsource their work. Most are managed by those same companies, Aramark, Compass, and Sodexo. But the thing is, without consistent unions, without consistent contracts, these workers face hour cuts so that their hours, in some cases, are purposely never meant to amount to a full-time Job. They might get a paycheck based on, you know, 39 hours of work. Uh, they've also got to put up with harassment and general job insecurity. And the fact that a lot of these university dining hall workers make a median wage of just over $17,000 a year. But what's great to see is that those students and those lunch ladies from UNC in the 1960s definitely created a lasting legacy of students joining in to support basically the women who are feeding them every day. Uh, so in 2012 at Northeastern University, you see a handful of students joining a campaign, part of the Real Food, Real Jobs effort, which is a national effort by Unite Here to unionize dining hall workers. And uh, these students were basically convinced that the university wasn't taking these workers seriously in general, but specifically They were frustrated and disgusted by workers' reports of sexual harassment on the job. So there was one student that was interviewed for this article that we read that was like, you know, I wanted to get involved and I spoke to these women in my school's cafeteria and I I was horrified to hear that, like, they're constantly being groped by this manager on the job and that they have they basically feel that they have no No recourse. And so their goal in joining forces was to convince that company that ran the school's dining services to recognize the union and to negotiate a contract formalizing certain rights and protections for workers. And spoiler, happy ending. They won. They were successful. Um, And the thing about Unite here is that from 2010 to 2012, they were able to win union recognition or uh, a contract for workers on 12 separate university campuses in this country, including Georgetown and Harvard Law, all with more affordable health care and mandated annual raises. And never underestimate the power of students who were riled up, you know, I mean, they when you get together, the power of like collaboration, activism and a sense of injustice, go for it. I mean, even at uh, our university, when that living wage movement was really going on um, for food service workers, there was a lot of collaboration with student organizations. Yeah, you got to love an idealistic and impassioned young person who is actually willing to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So if we move that same year in 2012 to Chicago and look at their public schools, so move out of college, uh, lunch ladies were none too pleased. That's an understatement uh, at the trend, which actually began under Reagan of removing or just not including kitchen facilities at schools, meaning that you've got more schools, more and more and more schools just reheating that industrial made frozen food whose nutritive value is questionable. And so they were therefore losing out on fresh and sometimes even relatively local foods. So in this article that we were reading, there was this opportunity to uh, basically feed Chicago public school students uh, locally sourced 
chicken. But the thing is, it came to them raw. So the only schools that could accept the basically fresh, locally sourced poultry were schools that had not dismantled their kitchens. And, of course, a lot of those schools tended to be maybe in the more wealthy areas of town, too. So then, with the support from parents, the union workers argued a well-run public cafeteria is a public service. Echoes of Ellen Swallow Richards, anyone? Oh, Ellen. Oh, Ellen. She's still around. Uh, so they ended up winning a five-year moratorium on building new schools that did not have kitchens or converting existing kitchens to the heat and serve model. That meant more fresh food for kids and more job security for food service workers. And also they secured them a raise, bringing their pay up to an average of $12.50 an hour with 2% raises each of the next two years. Yeah. So... Again, walking the walk. Also, did you realize before reading for this episode how few public schools have working kitchens? No. I didn't either. I, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, a lot of it goes to what the government is providing these schools yeah. and in what way they are providing it. Because a lot of what happens is you've got the USDA, just like back during the Depression and World War II, you've got the USDA... Uh, scooping up the surplus food that's produced in this country, whether it's meat and dairy or vegetables. A lot of corn. It's a lot of corn. <laughs> a lot of corn and a lot of milk. Um, and providing it to schools. But the thing is, before it's provided to schools, it's not like they drop off a bounty. You know, there's not a cornucopia of fresh foods delivered every day. They send it to these industrial central kitchens, which then turns it into things like a burrito in a bag or whatever. And then they sent to the school to pop it in the microwave or what have you. Um, and of course, that's not everywhere. That's not everyone. But that's kind of generally how it goes. And there's this <laughs> so-called renegade lunch lady named Ann Cooper, who's made it her mission to push back against that insanity. So in 2005, there was a terrifically entertaining New Yorker profile of Ann Cooper, who had been hired as executive chef of Berkeley, California public schools to revamp their lunch program. And if you hear that, you might think, oh, Berkeley, okay, they hired a fancy chef. They're probably eating some shishi, you know, micro green salads or something like that. No, no, no. I mean, there is a lot of there. There's a major wealth gap, right, in Berkeley, and so she was going into the types of public schools that you run into in a lot of urban areas where we're talking about the frozen burritos in a bag that kids are being served, and nothing makes Ann Cooper <laughs> angrier than a burrito in a bag. Oh my God! Let me tell you what she is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, she's buds with Alice Waters of Chez Panisse, and that's how she's getting the funding to even do this. And she'd been, you know, trained as a chef. She run, ran the kitchen at the super fancy Ross School in East Hampton, New York, um, and that was where kids were eating. You know, she she uh, lentil froth with. Um, <laughs> I literally was just thinking about froth because yes. I feel like anytime I or watch foam, foam, anytime I watch a cooking show, Anthony Bourdain is eating foam <laughs> in some foam. other country. If uh, foam on a plate just really makes me mad because that is not going to fill me up. It's so insulting. I don't want my calories to be froth. But she was doing cool things like being able to pair, say, Renaissance <laughs> curriculum with uh, like medieval food. Yeah. You know, and um, she had. Yes, yeah, she had the money, the time and the staff at her disposal and food waste, as heartbreaking as this is to say, wasn't that big of a deal. Because she had the time and the luxury of allowing students' palates to adjust. Because uh, even though these were very, you know, well-off students at a well-off school, I mean, they're still just as picky of an eater as kids are anywhere. And so, you know, if they if they didn't like their, you know, smoked salmon or whatever the first day, well, that's fine. Like maybe next Tuesday they will eat it. <laughs> and then, and on foam Fridays. <laughs> So that's her background mm -hmm. that she's bringing with her when she gets to California. And she banned heat and serve meals 
She made a list of undesirable ingredients like trans fats and preservatives, uh, foods with too much sodium, refined flour, sugar, high fructose corn syrup, etc. Starts looking for substitutes. She also bans chocolate milk, milk with hormones, vending machines, fried foods. And I got to tell you that my mom taught in public school for a really long time. And I loved visiting her because I could always just pop over to the vending machine. There were vending machines everywhere. Yeah. And so that's part of the issue, actually, is, I mean, you've heard all of these efforts to like ban vending machines, ban Coke machines and sugary drinks and Snickers bars and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, well, not only is the concern, you know, children's cavities and their uh, nutrition, but there's also the whole issue of the government is losing money. When kids are, like, disgusted by what they see on their lunch tray, they tend to, statistically, go spend their money at the vending machine. Yeah, I mean, and reading the ordeal that this highly trained chef went through to try to provide these healthier lunches, well-balanced lunches, really hammers home, I mean, the tough job that an average cafeteria worker is going to have. Because, I mean, you have to just work with whatever you're given. Right. And and that's her thing is, is, you know, she was fed up with working with what she was given. But by the end of the article, she's like, yeah, I get it. I get why people just put up with the burrito in a bag because you can only do so much with the resources that the USDA gives you. Um, but speaking of the USDA, uh, Cooper had nothing nice to say about them because she's totally disgusted with the unbalanced portions of meat and dairy versus vegetables that the government would send to schools. So schools across the country, as this New Yorker piece spells out, get about $700 million worth of meat and dairy Versus less than $250 million worth of vegetables. And Ann Cooper says that, yeah, well, this is because the USDA is the, quote, marketing arm for agribusiness. They're just buying up surpluses and sending them to schools, whatever can fill their pockets and be most beneficial to them and their farmers, regardless of what is best for the schools. And so, yeah, like we were saying, by the end of the article, she realizes just how bad the lunch ladies and schools have it, that they're trapped between a rock and a hard place when it comes to regulations over fat, sugar and calories that this country that and I didn't really know I didn't know this, that this country has sort of these broad brush across the board standards and regulations for for how much fat, sugar and calories can be in food. And so, you know, you you go back to remember when we were young and our parents were eating snack wells because it was thought that fat was the devil, not sugar. Well, a lot of that mentality is still happening in our schools where, oh, this meal has too much fat, but not enough carbs. So you get school lunch ladies who are having to add chocolate to the milk just to meet the sugar standard or the carb standard for that day's lunch. Never mind the fact that, like, that's not as nutritious as if you just focused on the healthy fats, the healthy greens of a good lunch. Well, and also mentioned in this piece was uh, a contract. I don't know if it was a nationwide contract or specific to an urban school district or what, but it was um, with one of either like PepsiCo or Coca-Cola that agreed to remove everything but diet sodas oh. from these schools. And the politician who brokered the deal called it brave, brave. That's that's interesting. But I mean, it, it was also cited in this article that once they did remove a lot of those vending machine options, you saw the profits from the sale of school lunches skyrocket. Once kids got used to the different food and they were eating more of the healthy stuff and not so much the vending machine stuff, of course, those school lunch programs are going to rake in more money. Now, as a past homeschooler, I don't have a lot of knowledge firsthand of school lunches. Were you a school lunch kid? No, my mother packed my lunch every day with a joke. Oh my God, I love that. It was always a joke and like my friends would gather around to see what the joke of the day was. Yeah, my mother would buy joke books. 
to write jokes to me every day. I really love that fun fact. Um, but the days that I would leave my lunch in my locker were always chicken breast days. Oh. Chicken, chicken thigh days, I guess. To me as a young person, they looked as big as like a chicken breast, but they were these greasy, beautiful, glistening yellow chicken thighs with like mashed potatoes and green beans that were cooked within an inch of their life. And I just loved that greasy chicken. Could care less about the pizza. Could care less about the jello. I was, I was there for the chicken thigh though. So I went to kindergarten outside of my home and uh, the one school lunch I still so clearly remember was one Friday when, uh, my mom wanted me to wear this dress that I hated for some reason. And honestly, like I wasn't a bratty child. I really wasn't. But there was just this one dress. It was a hand-me-down from one of my sisters. And I just thought it was just the worst. <laughs> and since I'd never worn it, my mom was like, you need to, you need to wear this. And I pitched such a fit that I forgot to bring my lunch. I just, you know, ran out of the van crying and, you know, into school and realized I had left my lunch. And so I had to eat lunch at the school. And boy, did I turn my frown upside down when I realized it was pizza day (laughs) and everything was right as rain. Once I got my special tray with the, you know, rectangular piece of cheese and pepperoni pizza with the pepperoni cubes and (sighs) a little side of unsalted corn. Oh, <laughs> I guess with the pizza, they'd reach their like sodium capacity. I guess so. Yeah. I just remember the corn being like very watery and, and bland. And as I was eating it, I was like, mm, well, maybe my, maybe my lunches aren't so bad after all, <laughs> but I still hate this dress. But I love this pizza. Yeah. <laughs> but I can still, yeah. I mean, it's just a strange, like even I can even remember the smell of the cafeteria. Yeah. Yeah. I can too. Um, what a what a gross air freshener that would be. <laughs> is this is this cafeteria smell? Mm. You know, did you get that at Yankee Candle? So sometimes I will be someplace, usually near a food service area, and I will get a whiff of that elementary school cafeteria smell, and it immediately transports me back uh, to the day that one of my classmates was trying to get my Reese's peanut butter cups, and I was like, "Step off!" Ooh. Um, but, uh, you know, end of the story is that Cooper ended up taking her show on the road to, uh, Colorado's Boulder Valley School District. And she's actually launched because she recognizes the importance, just as Ellen Swallow Richards did. She recognizes the importance of healthy lunches and the ridiculousness of all the, like, government bureaucracy around them. She actually launched the consulting firm Lunch Lessons and the nonprofit Food Family Farming Foundation. So good for you, Ann Cooper. Godspeed. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, but there are so many other activist lunch ladies, both inside of schools and outside, who are working out there to to change things for the better that deserve their due. Um, like just this year, we've had a whole slew of lunch lady activists. In May of 2016, Walt Disney cafeteria workers demanded a union because the thing is, most Disney workers do belong to a union, but cafeteria work is outsourced. Uh, and in June of 2016... University of Toronto cafeteria workers, that's in Canada, uh, launched a hunger strike to protest their contract terms, uh, which would have stripped more than 200 workers of their seniority and put them back on their probationary period, even people who've worked there their entire careers. And you know who else outsources their cafeteria workers is the U.S. Senate, which... Come on. So in July 2016, the Department of Labor found that 674 Senate cafeteria workers were owed more than a million dollars in back pay because their employer, not the U.S. government, but restaurant associates and personnel plus misclassified them and illegally underpaid them. And a year earlier, Senate cafeteria workers and janitors had walked off the job, joining more than a thousand labor activists at a rally demanding Congress and President Obama require federal contractors to pay workers more. And come on. Heck, yeah. Ah, 
I have a scolding face on right now. But I mean, the importance of this can't be understated because just like with our janitor episode, you know, we, we talked about how these people are invisible and underappreciated and just I mean, treated badly in general, but also just literally underpaid and undervalued. And so to have them stepping up as a unified force to just demand being treated like a human is so important. And and I would love to see more uh, movements like we saw in 1969 with the women at UNC, like the Walt Disney workers, like the Senate cafeteria workers as well. And one person who's trying to do his part to show some appreciation for lunch ladies is this guy, Jarrett Krasoska. He actually created the Lunch Lady graphic novel series, and it's amazing. It basically helps encourage kids across this country and beyond to recognize the hard work of those underpaid lunch ladies who spend their days feeding them. And so the result, uh, Krasovka has a, a TED Talk where he talks all about this, and it's very heartwarming. Um, but workers have told him time and time again, that they are blown away by the appreciation that they see from kids after they've read those graphic novels, saying that I don't feel invisible and unimportant anymore. These kids are thanking me for my hard work. And, you know, like, well, why why is that important? Why does that matter beyond a heartwarming story? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that students have supported so many cafeteria workers and so many of their movements they're sort of, they're linked. I mean, here are these women, mostly 93% women, who are feeding these kids. We all grow up in some capacity, in some way, with lunch ladies to a degree and have exposure to them in some way. And so hopefully when these kids who read these graphic novels grow up, maybe they will also become activists at school who will join ranks with uh, with these lunch ladies, with these cafeteria workers, or at the very least, recognize their humanity and their importance and treat them like people. Yeah, fostering respect for them. I mean, that's one of the best things that you can role model for a kid is treating these workers with dignity mm-hmm. that they deserve. So listeners, now we want to hear from you. Are there any lunch ladies listening? We want to know your thoughts. Any lunch lady memories you want to share, particular food items that you still remember <laughs> from kindergarten like me, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And if also there is a food service worker movement that you think that we should shout out that we haven't mentioned, please let us know that as well. Again, our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. So I have a letter here from Lee, subject line, unicorn gossip. So, uh, Lee writes, I love the podcast and wanted to share my brushes with the Lisa Frank universe. I'm a Tucsonian and it seems everyone here has a Lisa Frank story. Oh my gosh, I love everything about that <laughs> sentence. In high school, I had a friend who worked at the Lisa Frank Clubhouse, a retail store that was located in the Tucson Mall. The store was very Trapper Keeper trippy. The workers there were required to know all the characters' names and personality traits. I believe the unicorn's name is Marky. And yes, you are corrected as Marky. My friend told me that they were expected to recognize Lisa, her kids, and the company higher-ups should they ever come to the store, which they didn't. We hung out at the store a lot because there were barely customers. Not surprisingly, my friend stopped working there right before the clubhouse shut down. Around 2008, I was bored with my HR job and was looking for something more creative. I stumbled across an ad on Craigslist that said a large local company was looking for writers to create backstories for a new line of kids' characters. I answered the ad and was surprised to get an email back from someone at Lisa Frank. They replied with an application, a form to fill out for a credit check, and an assignment to create five characters, what they looked like, hobbies, fears, family, strengths, etc., I sent back the application, but not the credit check or assignment. Being in human resources, I thought it was strange that they wanted a credit report for a potential contractor before even interviewing the person. 
I wanted to know what the pay rate was and also asked some questions about the assignment they wanted all the applicants to do for free. The person who replied said that they couldn't give me any information until I did the credit check and completed the assignment. I called Lisa Frank headquarters to speak to the HR person, but the number they had listed was just a voicemail bank. I decided not to pursue the quote-unquote opportunity as the whole thing felt very fishy. Later, there were a handful of rants on Craigslist about Lisa Frank scamming for free work. Ooh, that is such good unicorn gossip. Thanks for sharing, Lee. All right, I have one here from Jen in response to our Lady Boxers episode. Um, she says, I love your Fighting for Women's Olympic Boxing episode. Uh, I was so excited to see it in the lineup. In July, I went to Toronto Pride for the first time, specifically the Dyke March, and ended up marching immediately behind the Toronto News Girls Boxing Club. Okay, first of all, side note, that's an amazing name. I need a like boxcar children or babysitters club style series of books based on the Toronto News Girls boxing team because I just imagine them dressed as newsies fighting and and I I'm in love now. Anyway, Jen goes on. They had four women holding the corners of the quote-unquote ring, and the boxers rotated in and out of the ring, all while moving along the parade route. It was pretty cool to see, and while I may never actively follow boxing of any kind, I do have far more appreciation for it thanks to you and those awesome athletes. Thanks for continuing to broaden my interests. Well, thank you for writing in. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn even more about Lunch Ladies, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 